vision. Your paradigm is about to shift at the intersection of fact and reason. You're entering Kingston Country. I'm Dan Kingston, and you're listening to the Dan Kingston Podcast. Mr. Vinman, you testified in your deposition that you did not know the whistleblower. Uh, rank member, it's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, please. Uh, Le- Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. Trey Bearclaws, a Marine combat veteran, thank you for joining the podcast today, and thank you for your military service, Trey. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Today, obviously, news-packed day. Representative Devin Nunes referred to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman as Mr. Vindman, and it got a lot of press because Vindman then corrected him and said, Ranking member, it's Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, please. And given your military experience, I was curious, Trey, what did you make of that exchange? Right. So, you know, being in the military, uh, raised military, in the military, um, you always want to give people uh, the courtesy of of calling them by their rank. Um, I think it's appropriate. Um, in, In a setting where you're dealing with people who are not necessarily in the military and used to those common courtesies that we offer each other in the military, um, you can see where in the heat of questioning and talking, um, you can get a mister instead of a lieutenant colonel. Um, You know, although I would always like to address someone by their rank if I can, um, uh, it's never appropriate for someone in the military uh, to, to force those customs and courtesies on someone in the manner in which he did it. Um, I think it, um, that it's, it's one of those situations where you, you come across as arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think in, he meant to come across like, as arrogant? Cause he's getting a lot of critique. Like he was um, pompous or, or, or maybe it, it signals that he's has an ego. Did it strike you that way? Or do you think that uh, uh, could be innocent? You know, and it very well could be um, one of those situations where it's a misunderstanding, but by by addressing it, and instead of just going on and answering the question, by by addressing it, it does kind of come across as arrogant. Now, Trey, um, what's the proper it, way for me to address you? What it brings to mind? What is your ranking? Could I ask? Um, I'm, I'm a sergeant. Sergeant. So Sergeant Bearclaw would be the, the proper way to address you. If, if I was in uniform and, and there was other military members who were talking to me, um, yes. Because you now, didn't correct me. You members, didn't say, Dan Kingston, I'm a sergeant. You just went on with the interview when I introduced you in the beginning of the podcast. Right. That, right that, that's, that's correct. So what, um, later on, I guess, um, Chris Stewart, Representative Chris Stewart, asked some questions that I thought they got my attention because it comes down to this interpretation of of favor. Is favor does that equal a demand in the military? Vindman was talking about how uh, his interpretations of favor is a demand, I guess. And Chris Stewart was saying, "Well, wait a minute." Representative Chris Stewart was saying, "Wait, that's unfair to hold the the president to that standard." Did you see that clip? Right. So, so I, I, I was able to, to see that, um, earlier today. And, um, just as the Lieutenant Colonel said that 
when you are told to do something, uh, even if it's in a manner of a favor or, hey, can you do this for me uh, by someone who is, um, you know, of, of higher rank, especially, um, then, then it is a, an order. So regardless of the, uh, the way in which it was um, presented, uh, in the military, if someone of higher rank tells you something um, or to do something or ask something of you, then it's, it's an order. Um, <clears throat> now, in the, question, in the line of questioning, getting to the point of, you know, when they asked the lieutenant colonel um, whether his military customs and courtesies and, and, and the way he is in the military reflect his um, – the way that he looked at the phone call and the asking of a favor, you know, does that play a part in it? And he said, yes, Mm -hmm. which, um, uh, kind of goes to a little bit bigger of a point. Um, and something that I personally believe that the Lieutenant Colonel overstepped his bounds by, um, reporting the phone call to what we, believe now is probably the whistleblower after the testimony today. Right. Um, the whistleblower probably got the information from the Lieutenant Colonel. Right. And, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel, um, being in the military and listening in on a phone conversation and then going and talking about it from his perception is, is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, for one, uh, he didn't follow the, the chain of command in that situation and go to his, the, the the person that was in charge of him, um, he didn't go to through the proper channels to uh, become the whistleblower himself. So coming out of this, um, you don't have a favorable um, uh, look of of the lieutenant colonel Vinman after this. No, no, I, I don't actually. And you know the issue with um, Representative Nunez aside, um, and the fact that he appeared arrogant in that situation, you know, that aside, um, and, and my personal belief of this impeachment aside, I believe that, um, the Lieutenant Colonel probably stepped out of line when it comes to, um, talking about this phone call, one, having his own opinion of the phone call, um, two, having his own opinion of policy and of the policy of the president and, using his opinion and his interpretation to report to someone outside of his chain of command. Is he Um, potentially going to sway any independence with this? I mean, obviously, you know, he didn't sway us. (laughs) Is there anybody out there on the fence that could look at it and say, okay, well, here's a guy in uniform and uh, they, they look at it like, okay, he's, I mean, I don't think he was much help to the, to the Dems. I, I, I don't think he was really helpful. Is there any way to look at it and say he was helpful, I'm wondering? Great question. And, and we can start from the beginning of this impeachment hearing um, over the last week uh, in dealing with um, the, the open hearings, right? Because there's been a lot of things done behind closed doors that I don't think sway anyone's opinion right. um, at all. But I think now that it's some of this stuff is out in the open. If you go back and you look from the beginning of all these witnesses that have been called out in the open and questions have been asked of them, it's been 
talking about uh, the respective witnesses, their years of service, the accolades that they've obtained, the many different presidents or uh, administrations that they've gone through, right. um, the, the, the honorable years of service and how they're a patriot, the lieutenant colonel in his uniform wearing his ribbons, you know, all of these things are to, to try to sway opinion based on the fact, just like with Robert Mueller, they're above reproach. Right. Um, but they're not playing along. Is, they're they're it, not really not playing along and, and, and going for it. I mean, maybe here and there you see a clip or something, the Democrats, they're like, oh, I got you, I got you. But not really. You're looking at it and you're saying, this is, is what they were hoping for and thinking would be persuasive to the American people. I think I, 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 I'm, wor- I'm worried for them. I don't think it's going to work. No, and, and, I, and you know what, man? I don't think it's working either. The view of the Democrats was negative to begin with, and if they thought that starting this impeachment inquiry was going to gain them any favor with the American people, I think it, it backfired. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a, anytime you have any type of inquiries like this where a lot of people get to ask questions and a lot of different witnesses come in, you're going to have those gotcha moments on both sides. But at no time during any of this inquiry has any of the gotcha moments for the Democrats linked Donald Trump to any type of high crime or misdemeanor. Right. Nothing impeachable. Right. And, and you see um, that they're trying to say demand and bribery when, in fact, it's, it's really a stretch at best. And you, you speak so wisely about, about this. Um, may I ask, are you still serving in the military? Uh, I, I'm not uh, currently serving now. What do you do, may I ask? What do you do now? Yeah, I work in uh, healthcare, uh, vascular and interventional radiology, and cardiac cath lab. Oh, so that's a whole another podcast episode. We could talk about the healthcare crisis and that this kind of thing. Right. And what about? I mean, a sergeant, marine combat veteran. If I may ask, where did you serve, and and what was that experience like? Well, I was uh, stationed at Camp Lejeune. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina. Um, I was a machine gunner to start with, and then I was um, a uh, designated marksman for uh, state platoon for six Marines. Um, I deployed to Afghanistan. Um, actually, my unit was the first one to go to Afghanistan after 9-11. Ugh. So um, September 11th happened, and my unit actually left, 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, left out of... Um, Camp of the June on September the 20th. Wow. So uh, the 26th Mew at the time, my unit, along with the 15th Mew out of uh, Camp Pendleton, were the first combat troops to go into Afghanistan. And were you completely shocked, like everybody, about 9-11, or because you had served and you kind of knew that they were trying to get us? I mean, I was shocked. A lot of people I felt like were completely in the dark that they were trying to get us like that. Yeah, you know... Um, Everybody remembers, you know, I can hear my, I can, you know, my parents talk about where they were when they heard John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Mm. And I think people in my generation will always remember where they were um, on 9-11. And I was actually at the vehicle registration building um, on Camp Lejeune. And um, uh, because I had just left Marine Corps base to go to second Marine division. So I was in, in one company transferring to another and I was just updating my information um, at the uh, vehicle registration building and actually on the TV, watched the second plane hit the world trade center. Hmm. 
so, you know, um, in my first response, when they were talking about it on TV, I looked at the person standing next to me who I you know, didn't know who it was, but I made the comment, someone's going to war. Mm. And um, I didn't realize at the time that it was going to be me in nine days. Wow. Well, you knew right when you saw that, that, that someone was going to war, but you just couldn't, it was just so mind boggling to put yourself overseas nine days later in Afghanistan. That that's how soon it was. It was that soon after nine 11. I forget that. Right. Yes. So, um, the situation with me was I didn't even have a workup with the unit that I went to and deployed. Wow. Um, I actually trained on the USS Whidbey Island um, on ship, aboard ship, um, uh, going over to Afghanistan with my unit. Um, as a matter of fact, I, that was a Tuesday. So 9-11 happened on a Tuesday. That Friday, I was finally checking into my company. Um, second, well, I was actually checking in the 2nd Marine Division. And the major that checked me in said, have you ever deployed? And I said, no. Do you have any reason why you can't deploy? I said, no. He said, okay, you're going to 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. Um, I can't tell you when you're leaving uh, or where you're going, but um, you'll find out more information when you get to your company. Now, this is on a Friday, uh, just a couple days after 9-11. On Monday, when I checked into the unit, they said, okay, you're going, the, the battalion commander said, you're going to Kilo Company, you're a machine gunner, and we leave on Thursday. So I packed my bags that Monday uh, and Tuesday and got everything ready, and we boarded ship on Thursday. Were you allowed to tell people um, where you're going, or is that completely secret? Um, initially, well, we knew that we were getting on a ship and going over, uh, you know, over to, towards Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, everybody in my family and stuff like that, we talked about it and, and they knew that I was going over there. Mm. Now, once we were able to utilize the telephones on the ship or even the satellite phones when we were in country, we were not allowed to actually say anything. Um, if they asked where we were at, we would just tell them, hey, look, you know, watch the news. Uh, if you see something going on on the news, more than likely it's us. Because we were the only ones besides special forces um, that were actually in Afghanistan at the time. So 99% chance that if you saw something happening at the beginning of Afghanistan, it was me and my unit that were involved in it. So, I mean, we actually, we were actively in the uh, mountains of Kandahar uh, looking for Osama bin Laden um, um, at the time too. So I was a part of, of some of that where we actually had actionable intelligence to believe that he was actually in the mountains in Kandahar. The training that you had done for two years prior, did you feel like that was geared towards the operation you're doing in the mountains? Or were you like, wow, I, I was not expecting to be in this kind of battle? Well, well the, the, the funny thing about the Marine Corps is that they, they're trained for everything. Hmm. So um, I did eight years in the Marine Corps and I did six in the Army. Um, I was a combat medic and an x-ray tech in the army. It's where I got my medical training at. And in the army, um, each individual infantry unit trains for certain things. So you have your mountain division, you have your, uh, division that'll, you know, be good for the desert for jungle warfare, whatever. Now you do have your elite infantry, which they call the, the Rangers and they train for everything, but every Marine Corps unit 
trains um, everything. So you're trained for in the mountains, you're trained for cold weather, you're trained for hot weather, you're trained for um, jungle warfare, guerrilla type warfare, um, you know, um, and all that. So we were trained, well trained all the way up until that point. We were now, ready. We were ready. Answer, right. And, you know, the Marine Corps generally goes in first with the tip of the spear. Um, so you always have to be ready and well trained. And, and we were, you know, I, it wasn't, you, you never know how you're going to react in the combat situation or the people around you are going to react in a combat situation until you're actually in a combat situation, except for a handful of Marines who were senior enlisted, um, or senior officers, maybe a handful in my entire battalion, uh, were combat veterans, everybody else, no one ever had been in combat. Um, you know, it had been nearly two decades since, or excuse me, been over a decade since the um, Iraq war um, and Operation Desert Storm. So, and a lot of those soldiers and Marines and stuff got out after their deployments. So there were not a whole lot of Marines around at the time with actual combat experience. Hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a staff sergeant who was the um, platoon commander who was a private during desert storm. So he did actually have some combat experience. Our company commander who, um, later was promoted to major, um, and became the executive officer of second recon. He was prior enlisted staff sergeant. He had combat experience. So except for, you know, a handful of people, even throughout the battalion, uh, not a lot of people had combat experience at the time. So we were the first ones to actually go to combat. A lot of the equipment that we used, had never actually been combat tested. Um, it had been tested in the field, you know, field tested, but it was never tested under combat scenarios, combat you know, situations, combat loads. You know, a lot of stuff failed us while we were out there. Um, a lot of things changed because of what we found out, whether it was, you know, policies, whether it was equipment, whether it was tactics. A lot of things changed as the... Um, war and terror went on based on a lot of the stuff we learned from my unit, you know, initially going in and being the first ones in combat for in just over a decade. It's incredible to think about that. The fact that now we have all these soldiers with combat uh, experience. And then at that time, virtually zero. I mean, like you were saying, there's you know, two people, right? That you, that were in your vicinity that had the, the combat experience from the, right. the, the Gulf war. Right. Wow. Right. So in, in, I was in third battalion, six Marines, Kilo company In Kilo company. We only had two people that had ever had combat experience. Wow. And you're talking a, a, a battalion of four companies had a, probably a total of five people with hmm. combat experience. So what does it come down um, to just the training and the, the, the generals and the systems in place? Because the, I think people think about the Afghanistan war as it was swift. We went in there, we took care of it. Obviously, it got complicated later on down the road, but it's a kind of amazing thinking about that, given how you're laying out this reality that, you know, there hadn't been a major war in, in a long time. Right. Well, I think well, a few things make it seem easy from the outside looking in. One, we are very well trained. Uh, two, you know, we have some of the biggest and best um, equipment and, and, and guns and tanks. And, and firepower that the world has ever seen at this point 
you know, in civilization. I mean, we, we, we are a big, powerful force uh, as far as, you know, the United States go. We also had um, the backing of a, a pretty big coalition. So that also helped. Special forces being on the ground, that helped. But the biggest thing that allows um, wars to go swiftly and in our favor is when bureaucrats stay out of it. And and generally, in the beginning of a war, it's the president giving the orders, it's the generals coming up with the plan, and it's the soldiers and Marines on the ground that put that plan into action. Mm -hmm. Um, When we first went into Afghanistan, we had no um, rules of engagement. Um, It was pretty much an anything goes at that particular point in time. Um, If it looked as if it was... Um, an enemy combatant, we took it out. Um, wow. And then as wars drag on and poli- politicians get involved, um, you know, you add in rules of engagement and they get stricter. And then, you know, you're over there and, and your mission and objectives change. And that's where it starts to, starts to get complicated. Did you notice um, that firsthand? That, because you were there from the beginning. So you must have noticed that change that you're, that you're laying out. Right. Right. So, you know, 14 years in the military, I, you know, I was in for just, just over two when, when uh, 9-11 happened. So I had um, 12 years of military experience um, from the beginning of a conflict until what you see still going on now. And, and there's no doubt that, um, that you know, one, yeah, I did see the change. And there's no doubt that the that the changes that happen um, do in fact handcuff the, the war fighters that are on the front line. The training that we receive is top of the line. There is no country in the world that trains like we do. There is no country in the world that fights like we do. Um, But what happens is you handcuff war fighters and then you turn them into basically diplomats in uniform. Uh, and they're not trained for that. Uh, like the, so, the community building and the trust building and that kind of thing shouldn't be handled by the sergeants and the, the people on the ground. It, that's a different uh, group that needs to go in there to do that diplomatic stuff, right? Right, absolutely. So you, you, you turn you know, war fighters, like I say, into diplomats. Mm. And, and that's not what they're trained, trained to do. And then when you um, add the bureaucracy into it, um, and the politics, it, there becomes a lot of red tape and then you, your war fighters that are on the ground don't know, they, they, they kind of get lost in what to do. Um, so you, a lot of times you have, um, individuals over there that will end up getting shot and killed because they didn't act and they didn't act because they hesitated and they hesitated because of all the rules and regulations that are running through their head. Am I authorized to do this at this particular point in time? It becomes, you know, very difficult for our men and women that are actually on the ground doing the job to actually do the job. It it almost sounds similar to the, the police situation we have where they say they've been kind of handcuffed, you know, and afraid because of lawsuits and that kind of thing. Do you see a connection there? Well, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very similar, um, whether you're overseas in the military doing your job 
or out on the streets in country and in, in law enforcement. I guess the difference is, you know, the people you're dealing with are trying to kill you. At least there's a really high, high chance that they have a, a high powered gun or something like that. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, in, 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 but it is the same for law enforcement where you don't, you don't, what you're worried about in law enforcement is the Monday morning quarterback that will pick apart, will take hours, days, or weeks to pick apart something that you only had seconds to think about and react to. Uh, in that case, and, it's exactly the same. Right. And in that case, it is absolutely exactly the same. You know, and it's unfortunate that we are in that particular place and time that we are. Everybody's worried about lawsuits. Um, everybody's worried about perception and how they look in, in the public. So it's what can we do to appease the public to show that we're on top of this, you know, this perception in some areas that law enforcement is just out to get a certain sect of the population um, or overstepping their authority. And um, because of that, the law enforcement officers don't have the backing of their chain of command. Just like being overseas in country, the men and women on the ground and with civilian population around, it's dangerous. Mm for the civilian population and for the men and women on the ground. And it becomes dangerous for law enforcement here in the States. And it becomes dangerous for the citizens in that area because now the law enforcement are not out there proactively chasing down leads and, and looking for criminal uh, violations of the law and, and trying to find those bad guys that may do something. Um, they're more of a reactionary force, a report taker, basically. Mm. Um, so crime rates, well, you'll, you'll see crime rates start to rise in areas like that, and um, it makes the population in that area less safe. Sergeant Trey Bearclaw, we all owe you an incredible debt of gratitude for your military service. Thank you for your wise words today. Kingston Country. You've been listening to the Dan Kingston Podcast. 